The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. In the book of Acts, we're in a section here where we're, we're, we're taking a look at how the early church began to be formed and how it was shaped and directed and led by the Lord. And in chapter 6, as Pastor Jeff walked us through this last week, we saw how there was a controversy that broke out. And the early church was, was really on the verge of some, some division that was about to happen as a consequence of this controversy. And when in wisdom, the apostles came together and they they made a decision. They said, hey, you know what, listen, we're, we're trying to care for everybody, but we can't do that and continue to place the priority on prayer and on the, the preaching of the scriptures and do everything else. It takes time to be devoted to that, to be dedicated to that. So we've we got to grab some other people and start bringing them along because if we don't, the people that we're shepherding, the people that we love, the people that we care for and we want to see doing well, they're not going to do well. They're going to get pulled apart. And so they raised up several guys. In verse 3 of chapter 6, it says this, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you, Seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now because they were willing to hand off responsibility to other people and because God had raised up people that were willing to embrace that responsibility and take that on, the church continued to prosper and grow. And the word of God went out and it was preached effectively. It was prayed over and people were prayed for. And God used this transition and leadership to build up the church. And, and as a result of that, the ministry outside that the, that the church was bringing to the world continue to increase and multiply. So much so that a number of priests in the temple, the guys that are, are cutting the throats of lambs and of rams, the guys that receive the offerings for God in the temple that are steeped in tradition, a, a number of those guys are getting saved. And being brought into the household of faith. It's a powerful, powerful moment in the life of this early church. Here in this passage, we are introduced to a character that the next chapter is going to, to highlight the impact of his life for us. The character's name is Stephen. Now, we, we, we know a few things about Stephen. For those of you who are taking notes and you like organized thoughts, I'm going to give you a, a rough outline, but we're basically just going to talk through our passage today. So, Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, we see the character of Stephen. The character of Stephen. In verse 3, we see that he has a favorable reputation. Also, in order to be chosen, he has to be full of the Spirit. And thirdly, he should be full of wisdom. So the fact that Stephen was chosen said that he had these qualities. He had a good reputation. He was faithful in life in general. He was full of the Holy Spirit. There was, a, there was the anointing of God that was obvious upon his life. That there was this 
power present in who he was, that, that all of his life reflected that the kingdom, first and foremost, valued more to him than anything else. And he was full of wisdom. And practically, the guy just, he looked at things, he could figure it out, he had that gifting, and he, he would find a way to make things work. And he was the perfect guy to stick in this slot. In verse 5, we find out a little bit more about him. What they said, verse 5, pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. Here's another quality about Stephen. He was, he was full of faith. He just had this confidence in who God is. He just had the ability in a moment when, when the rest of the group were like the Israelites on the battlefield on the day that David faced off with Goliath, standing in the wings, and the rest of the church is going, I don't know how we're going to get through this, and I don't know what we're going to do. And Stephen was the guy who was full of faith, who came to the forefront, said, man, God is bigger than any giant that we're facing. God is bigger than our situation. He's going to work in this. He was full of conviction that God was powerful and could do anything that he wanted. <laughs> Stephen was a man full of faith. Verse 8 tells us a little bit more that he was full of grace and full of power. Full of grace. That's a little bit trickier to sort through does that mean that he was full of of unmerited favor from god that's one possibility or it means or it might mean also that the grace of god had so filled his life that he was so soaked in and saturated in the reality of what jesus had done for him on the cross that it just sort of seeped out of him leaked out of him and he was full of power. Probably because he was so full of faith. And because he was so confident in who God is, he stepped out in ways that other people didn't. And God met him. Great wonders and signs were being done among the people at the hands of Stephen because God was working mightily through this man who was full of the spirit and full of wisdom and full of faith and full of grace he was full of power i already love stephen don't you i mean just hearing these details i mean we get like just a couple of little descriptors of who he is and already i'm like i love this guy i want to be on stephen's team not only that but we see the the conduct of stephen and verses 8 through 10, that he was faithful in service. He was serving the people, doing wonders and signs among the people, that he was fruitful in his works, that God was blessing him, and that he was formidable in his wisdom. It goes on to say in verse 9, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So in Jerusalem, there were synagogues that were, they're not the temple, they're houses of worship that are not the temple, they're the teaching environments or schools for Jewish traditions places where people would gather. And a lot of times these gatherings were because the people who lived in Jerusalem were actually Hebrews from other lands, from other countries. Some of them were freedmen, which is what you see here in the text. That is, that they were slaves somewhere who had been freed and had now returned to the motherland, had now returned to the homeland. And they would gather because they had different languages and different traditions, but they still believed in, in, in the Hebrew God. They still believed in Yahweh. And they would gather and talk about the scriptures and, and reason with one another. And so there's people from all over the world, from Africa and Asia Minor, people from all over. And Stephen steps into that group, and he starts to minister. And, and, and he's so powerful in his wisdom that these guys are trying to argue with him. They just cannot find a gotcha moment. 
You know what I mean? For them, it's like spiritual, mental, theological chess. It's, it's a game for them. And they keep trying to checkmate him, but much like what Jesus did when he was ministering and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes would come and try and trick him and try and pin him into a corner or paint him into a corner, Stephen just has this solid wisdom. He just keeps making his way right through, cutting right to the heart of the matter. And they can't, they can't withstand him. He's got formidable wisdom. So we see the conduct of Stephen in verses 8 through 10. And then we see the conflict around Stephen in verse 10 through chapter 7, verse 1. It says this. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against, check this out, this is important, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered unto us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And so they, they, they bring Stephen before this council and they set up false accusers and they, they start to you know, tell lies about him. They twist the truth, they massage the words to mean something other than what they are intended to mean. Because he's teaching the teachings of Jesus. Stephen is sharing the things that Jesus said. And Jesus said that there would be a time where the temple would be destroyed. He predicted it in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. He said that that time would come. He also said that the law was being fulfilled by him. Not that it was being taken away or replaced, but that he would fulfill the law. So they took those phrases, they twisted those phrases to make it say like he was abolishing the law and that, that he was doing away with the temple and that Jesus was changing everything. And they know that this is going to get people riled. So this conflict erupts. What's the real reason? Well, first of all, the real reason was hurt egos in verse 10. They couldn't refute his wisdom. They couldn't argue him into a corner, so their egos were hurt. By the way, a lot of times people with really robust theology also have really robust egos. That's just the reality of it. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. She'll say to you, you know, Jeremy, you are always confident, and sometimes you're even right. They had hurt egos, but when they were cornered by their own questions and he refuted their wisdom, we also discovered they had hard hearts. They wouldn't bend under it. They didn't repent. They didn't turn to Jesus. They didn't embrace the truth of what was being preached, even though they couldn't refute it. They, they just resisted. They had hard hearts. In verse 12, and following, we find out that what they're really trying to cling to more than what is being brought to them through the gospel and through the preaching of Stephen are their traditions. They've got heavy traditions. And man, turning from traditions to cling to the living God is a hard thing to do. Because traditions help us to self-justify. I'm good with God because I came to church today. I'm good with God because I read my Bible, because I lifted my hands in worship, because I had an emotional response to something Pastor Jeremy was saying. Because I've got the Jesus Fish bumper sticker, because I homeschool my kids, because I don't do these activities, because I do do these activities I am justified 
before a righteous and holy God because of all of the things. And the message that Stephen is preaching is that there is no self-justification. All that there is is the justification that comes through Christ Jesus. That's it. But they want their traditions. It gives them a measuring rod. It gives them tools to go, I'm better than so-and-so, or I'm justified in this way. So they cling to those heavy traditions. And they give Stephen a chance to speak, and we're going to get a sample of that wisdom that he has. He's going to answer these charges, that he was speaking against the holy place and against the law, by giving them a history lesson that they already know. It's not that they were unaware of the Old Testament scriptures, of the writings of Moses and of the prophets. They weren't unaware of those things. But Stephen is going to show to them a pattern in their own history. It's a part of the fabric of their culture and their DNA as God's people. So for the next 50 or so verses, let's take a look at what he says. Verse 2, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. First of all, Stephen is not excluding himself from what he's about to say, saying, I'm a part of this too. This is a part of my heritage, right? It's a part of where I come from as well. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet, he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, even though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. Now let's pause here for just a moment. Here's what he's saying. Let's just summarize. Verses 2 through 4. God made you a people. You were just one of the, the Chaldeans. You were just, you're, you're just one of the Babylonians. But God separated you from that group in Abraham and brought you into this land. He made you a people. God gave you a land. Verse 5, verse 6 and 7. God preserved you. Verse 8. God made you his own through the covenant sign of circumcision. He said, you are marked uniquely as my people. God multiplied you. And God blessed you. How did you respond as God's people? He separated you, gave you a land, made you his own. How did you respond? Well, He says, right from the very beginning, the patriarchs who were jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him a ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came this famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could not find food. The ones who had rejected Joseph, the one that God had anointed, And when Jacob heard that 
There was grain in Egypt. He sent our fathers on their first visit. And then on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. God preserved even though they hated him. God saved even though they rejected him. And so, verse 14, Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. And our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, this is going back now to the promise that God made that he would bring them back into this land. As that time drew near, The people increased and multiplied in Egypt, verse 18, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Now he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And and then when he was exposed, put into a basket, shoved out into the Nile. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So you know the story there that Moses was a Hebrew child who was put in a basket, launched out into the river, committed to God as an act of faith by his mother. She built an ark for him, right? You know the story? Sound familiar like the old ark story? She knows her Bible, right? And in faith, she, she shuttles baby Moses out. He gets picked up by the daughter of Pharaoh, raised in Pharaoh's house, and preserved. And in verse 21, or excuse me, verse 22, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. He's educated in Pharaoh's court wise, mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Perhaps you'll remember that story where Moses steps in to a conflict where a slave is being mistreated by an Egyptian, kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. And on the following day, verse 26, he appeared to them, as they were quarreling, oh, excuse me, I, I skipped verse 25. Let me go back here. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And the, on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Hey, here you are again, brothers, fighting. Same household, same nation, same God, and you are fighting with each other again. Verse 27. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So Moses attempts to deliver his people. They reject him earlier in his life. He goes to live in the desert, but God grabs Moses out of the desert, brings him back in. says, I'm going to use you. He calls him through the burning bush. Verse 34, he says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? 
This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt. Moses did miracles to to verify the fact that he was sent from God. Just like Jesus had done miracles. Just like Stephen had done signs and wonders. This Moses, excuse me, verse 36, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received the living oracles to give unto us. This, this Moses, the one I'm talking about, Stephen's saying, this, this guy, uh, he is the one who led our people through the Red Sea into the wilderness. He's the one who went up the mountain, sat on the mountaintop with God, and received of God's own hand the commands and the covenant. How did they respond? Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship, to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. And our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers so that it was until the days of David. So he said, look, this Moses that led you into the wilderness, that received the oracles of God, you rejected. You seem to be concerned about this holy place, but God actually dwelled with you in a tent. You're concerned about the law, but the one who gave you the law, you rejected historically. The one who brought the law to you, you rejected as a people. You seem concerned about this holy place, and, 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 and yet when the holy place was among you, you did not honor it. You brought it in with you as some sort of token. By the time we get to the house, or to the time of David, verse 46, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built him a house for him. David wasn't allowed to do it because he was a, a man of blood, a man of war. Solomon ends up building the temple. Verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So here, here's what's happening. Stephen is giving a defense against the specific charges. They, they charge him saying that he, he's going to destroy the holy place and that he's going to do away with the law. And he's saying, you don't honor the law. You never have. Since the beginning of Israel, you never honored the law. You don't honor God. You never have. It's been a pattern in our history over and over and over again. And the holy place that you seem so concerned about, how holy is it? The whole earth 
belongs to God? Is there a place where he doesn't dwell? You seem so concerned about this specific location. In verse 51, he sums up this teaching saying, you stiff-necked people. Hold on. Before I read this, I want you to think about this moment. Like I grew up watching like John Wayne movies and stuff. This is like a John Wayne moment right here, right? Councils all gathered around. They're looking for anything to accuse him with. He stands up, recounts to them their own history. Says, you seem concerned about the law. You seem concerned about the holy place, but you've never honored any of those things throughout your history as a nation, as a people. And now he's going to just lay it down like it is. Ready? Now put yourself in that moment, silence in the room, the muckety-muck religious people are there, right? The highest of the high, the high priest, probably Caiaphas, the guy who killed Jesus is sitting there. And the Sanhedrin and that council that was all responsible for his death is all sitting there. And the leaders of the synagogues and the false witnesses are all sitting there and the room is silent and he turns to them and says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Nothing's new. The same thing that happened then is happening right now. God is working. He's redeeming. He's saving. And you are rejecting. (laughs) Which of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Oh, think about that moment. He's looking the guys who murdered Jesus in the eyeballs and saying, you murdered the one that God sent and you're guilty of this. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. All your false witnesses and all your false testimonies and all your pomp and circumstance and looking like you care about the things of God. Do you care about the things of God? Obviously not. Why are we here? Now, That's Stephen's critique as he answers the charges of the holy place and the holy word. Now we're going to see not only the critique by Stephen, but the coronation of Stephen, verses 54 to 60. And when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. Ever had that? Ever been that mad? Ever been so mad where every muscle in your body tenses up and your teeth just grrrt? I remember, I have a childhood memory of my brother chasing me down with a pencil to stab me in the leg. That's what I'm seeing right here. And they just rush at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Now imagine how hard your heart has to be Stephen, as as they are growing in anger, his face starts glowing like an angel. He looks up into something they cannot see. 
And then he tells them what he sees. I, I see the heavens opened up. I, I, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they are so hard-hearted, it's just like, no, we don't want to hear it. They just can't take it. They rush on him at once, covering their ears. Verse 58, and they cast him out of the city. They grab him, they drag his body through the city, and they stoned him. That's one simple line, but I want you to think about the brutality of this. They, they grabbed a human body that is staring into the unseen world. They, they, they dragged it through the city. There's, there's crowds screaming. People are covering their ears. They throw him over the side of the city. They grab rocks and they just begin to pommel his body. Think about the sounds you would hear as a rock hits a bony part of Stephen's body. Think about what you're seeing as you watch the life leave his body. And he took their coats and laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. When we read a story like this in the Bible, I think it's easy to go to the imagination part of our brains. It's kind of the part where we store movies and books and things that we make up, right? But to those that were there, it was the traumatic reality of mob justice. Have you seen those news reports where a journalist or maybe a soldier in some foreign country is being dragged through the streets? You see the lifeless body, that tears at your heart. Because it's not a story anymore, it's a reality, right? You're seeing, it's, it's real, it's happening right there. Our brother Stephen, that was a reality, that was news, it wasn't, it wasn't a story. And on the one hand, I think there's a tendency for us as believers to sort of uh, paint this idea that that this is a glorious, glorious moment as Stephen is being received by Jesus up into heaven. And it is glorious in that reality, but, but nobody else could see that. The people that were standing there saw a head getting caved in by a rock. That's what they saw. That's the reality. And I, I wonder, and I'm, just if we were being honest, let's, let's say that happened to somebody here. Let's say it happened to somebody that, that we know, like my, myself or, or Winston over here or, or Mike. On the news, we're watching it this evening. And one of our brothers or one of our sisters from here is brutally beaten to death by an angry mob because they were standing up for the name of Jesus. What would be the questions that run around in your mind? I know one for me, when I think about the reality of this, I think, is it, is it worth it? I mean, really. Standing up for the name of Jesus at the brutal cost of your own life, is, is, is it worth it? Was, it? was it worth it to his friends? 
the guys that had to come collect his body? Was it worth it to his family? The suffering that Stephen went through, did, did they see it as worth it? Was it worth it to Stephen for his life after faithfully giving himself to God in service and being full of wisdom and being full of the Holy Spirit and ministering to others? Was it worth it to Stephen in the end to die this horrible, horrific death? Was it worth it? In the end, we can definitely see that Christ was so formed in Stephen in life that he resembled Christ in his death. We can see that Jesus was definitely pleased with Stephen. Hebrews 10 tells us that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father when a sacrifice was made that once and for all secured the salvation for all those who would believe. He sat down because there was nothing left to do. But here in this passage, we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, ready to receive Stephen. And, and, and Jesus is stoked about what is happening and is pleased with Stephen. In this moment, the only thing that seems to stir the lamb from his throne is the reality of receiving our brother Stephen. But the question still remains, is it worth it? Is it worth it to receive a standing ovation by Jesus? Is that worth it? That kind of suffering? Let's bring this a little bit closer to home. How about this? Is it worth it when you're a young woman who lays aside her education and career goals to wipe snotty noses and dirty butts? Because you have this conviction that God has called you to be a mother and a wife and that it's a holy calling. When all the world is looking down at you and, and other people that you grew up with are getting careers and making it in places and traveling the world and doing big things and you're at home with little kids and you're asking yourself, is it worth it to suffer like this? Because of an idea? That this somehow honors God? That it somehow pleases Him? Is it worth it when you dedicate yourself to being a man who trades his time and physical health at a job he does not prefer simply because he believes it honors God to do uncomfortable things and to provide for his family? Is it worth it on a Sunday morning to get up earlier than everybody else to come down here when there's nobody here and set up chairs week after week and you'll never be acknowledged by anybody and nobody will ever notice you and you come down and you set up chairs and you pray over this sanctuary and then you're the last person to leave when everybody else is off having lunch and your stomach is growling and you just wish you could get all the stacks over at once. Is it worth it? What about this? When he wrongs you again, when she hurts you again, and once again, here you are at this crisis in marriage, and you are being forced to forgive again, and your heart is hurting. You're being forced to make a choice to pursue love, and when marriage costs you deeply, is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep suffering like that simply because you believe it honors God? Is it worth it to dedicate your life in missions only to watch your health disappear because malaria, malnutrition, disease, parasites have all taken their toll? And instead of living a nice, long, full life, you live a shortened one. Because you dedicated yourself to the service of God. Is that a waste of a life? Is it worth it? I'm going to tell you right now. You ready? No. It's not. A hundred percent. 
Absolutely. No, it is not worth it. It isn't. Unless, unless Jesus is risen from the dead. Unless Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Unless Jesus will one day stand from that throne that he sits upon to receive those who are his and to say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Unless Jesus is the king of all kings and Lord of all lords, then it's not worth it. But if he is, but if he is, it is all worth it. It is all worth it. If there really is a new heaven and a new earth in the future, there really is a king of kings and lord of lords who presides over all and we will give an account of our lives to him, then it is all worth it. If Jesus really is coming again, and he really is the name above all names and the one to whom we will give an account, the suffering that you go through in your home, as a parent, as a father, as a husband, as a wife, as a laborer, the suffering you go through as a missionary, the suffering that you go through in week after week, demonstrating faithfulness and giving of your wealth to the kingdom of God, the suffering that you go through in day-to-day life and choosing love again and obeying the covenant of marriage and and choosing to come back to it over and over again, the the faithfulness that you exhibit in rising early to be with your Savior, All of it matters then. You see, and Stephen, as the rocks are coming in, looks into heaven and sees finally the hope that he has set his life upon. In reality, there he is. I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. And as the rocks are coming, how does he respond? Who responds like this? Only somebody who is assured of the reality of a good Savior who really has risen from the dead. Only somebody who has seen and witnessed this reality in the heavens can look around at the ones who throw rocks and say, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. I'll give you a little sneak peek into next week's sermon. God answered his prayer. Because the one that they laid the jackets at the feet of, is forgiven. Becomes one of the greatest missionaries of all time. I'm going to invite Mitch to come up and lead us in a little worship. As he's coming up, though, I I want to do something a little bit different. Right now, I know that there are some people in here who are weary. You've become weary in well-doing. And you feel the growing sense of hopelessness, of like, is, it, does, does my life matter? Do, do all these little occurrences of faithfulness add up to anything that has any value to anybody other than God? Does it matter that I'm faithfully at home plugging away as a mom? Does it matter that I'm plugging away at this job? Does it matter that I'm sacrificing by coming here and serving and you're weary and you're tired and I just want to encourage you, if you're here today, We love you, and we want to wrap our arms around you. We want to pray for you that God would strengthen you to maintain faithfulness. That he would give you fresh vision. Listen, in Stephen's mind, the reality of the kingdom was so big that no matter the cost, it was worth it. No matter the suffering, it was worth it. If you're here today and that question has been burning in your heart, you're here today and you're weary and you've been wondering, 
if it's worth it, would you raise your hand right now? We, we just want to pray for you. Anybody here who's weary, who's heavy? All right, excellent. Keep those hands up high. I want to see them. Those of you who are around these folks with their hands up, I want you to gather around them and lay hands on them right now. We want to pray for them as a group. Would you do that? For those who are weary, keep your hand up. We want to gather around you as a body of believers, as the members of the body of Jesus Christ. We want to pray for strength and encouragement for you today. Those who are around, would you just begin to pray for them, just minister to them as, as Mitch leads us in worship. You can continue to pray as long as you see fit. And then we'll continue to join one another in worship. Father, these hearts are heavy. There's folks that are tired. There, there, there are those this morning who, though they want to honor you with their lives, have just grown tired. Refresh their vision. Help them to see what Stephen saw. God, draw their eyes to the reality of a kingdom that makes it all worth it. Give them the strength to keep standing in their lives, to keep following you, to keep obeying, to even embrace suffering because the reality of the kingdom is worth it. Minister your hope to them and fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit. Send them out of this place renewed and in power we pray we ask this in the name of Jesus and for his glory amen